Well, good morning, Keystone. Uh, you can open up to the book of Zechariah this morning. I would guess you can count on one hand how many times you've heard someone say that before. Uh, maybe it's a big zero. Uh, I thought about throwing back to youth ministry days this morning and starting out with a sword drill to see who could find it the fastest. Uh, but it is the, one of the last books in the Old Testament right before Malachi and Matthew, if you're looking for it. And, and I think it's a good question to, uh, with doing a series on Zechariah for us to ask, why in the world do a preaching series on the book of Zechariah? Why, why spend weeks looking at this book. Uh, we're going to break it up into two different parts, as I'll share in a moment. But why, why spend time looking at this book? And, and I want to suggest four answers to start this morning of why I do this. The, the first two being a little bit more generic. Uh, you might already even guess the first two. Uh, and then the second two being a little bit more specific. And so the first one is simply this. Why do a preaching series on the book of Zechariah? Uh, because it's God's word, right? Because it's God's word. And I think there's this tendency for us to have our favorite parts of the Bible that we go back to again and again and again. And I think that's completely fine and good. But the danger is that then we completely avoid other parts of the Bible that God might want to speak to us through as well. That, that in some ways when we approach the Bible, maybe you're like me a little bit when I go out to eat. That when I go out to eat someplace, I almost always get the burger, because I know I'm going to like the burger. But I wonder how many times when I get the burger, I end up missing out on something else that's really good on the menu because I'm just not willing to try it. And when we come to the Bible, God doesn't just speak through the Psalms or, or the book of Luke or Romans or, or whatever your favorite parts of the Bible may be. He speaks through all of it. And so he has a message for us, I would say, in the book of Zechariah. The second reason why I do a preaching series on Zechariah is this, because the prophets were serving us. Peter says something incredible in 1 Peter uh, 1, 10 through 12, and he, here's what he says. He says, concerning this salvation, talking about Jesus and what he's accomplished, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." God wants to use the prophets to shape and mold us today, to change us today, to speak to us, to have us fix our eyes on Christ and become more and more like him. Here's the third reason. Why do a series on the book of Zechariah? Because Zechariah is a book for discouraged people. Zechariah is speaking into the lives of people who are deeply discouraged. These are people who returned home from exile, as we'll see in a moment, with high hopes that God's going to restore Israel to the type of former glory days that they saw in King David and King Solomon's reign. And yet the reality they come back to and the reality they're facing 16 years later when Zechariah writes them is far different. Zechariah is written to people whose life has not turned out how they expected it would. Zechariah is written to people who feel like failures. 
Zechariah is written to people who wonder what in the world is God up to. Zechariah is written to people who are discouraged and disillusioned for all sorts of different reasons. In other words, Zechariah is written to people like us, who may be discouraged in all sorts of ways and need God to speak to us and offer us hope. Perhaps this is Brian Gregory talking about the book of Zechariah. He says, perhaps we need the book of Zechariah with its encouraging visions and convicting oracles as much as anyone. Perhaps in our discouragement, we too need to encounter God's word in the book of Zechariah. And then the fourth reason, I think the third reason is kind of the primary one, but the fourth reason, because Zechariah has a lot to say about Jesus. Uh, Outside of the Psalms, Zechariah is actually the most quoted book in the gospel accounts leading up to the crucifixion and at the crucifixion. That Zechariah almost gives this script that Jesus is following as he heads to the cross and then dies for our sins. And so as we look at Zechariah, he's ultimately going to point us to Christ. Now, Zechariah splits into three parts, I would say. Chapters 1 through 6, chapters 7 and 8, and then chapters 9 through 14. And we're going to look at two of those parts throughout the series. First of all, looking at chapters 1 through 6. In these chapters, Zechariah has these eight visions that in some ways are wild rides, but that are ultimately meant to lift the people's eyes above their present circumstances and to see God and what he's doing in the world and to have that shape how they view their life and their present circumstances. And so we're going to spend six weeks in that part of the book under the title Visions of Hope to see how God speaks to discouraged people, offering them hope through these visions. And then we'll turn to Zechariah 9 through 14. We're not going to look at chapters 7 and 8. But in these chapters, Zechariah is looking out to the coming kingdom God has promised and the coming king. And so we're going to look at those chapters for three weeks leading up to Christmas under the title Visions of a King to see how Zechariah speaks of Jesus, not only in his first coming, but also when he returns one day again. Now, if that's all answering the question, why do a series on the book of Zechariah? We've got another question that we should ask and answer before we jump into the first six verses in Zechariah. What in the world is happening at the time of Zechariah? What's going on in the world? What's happening as he's speaking to this group of Israelites who've returned home from exile? When we, when we come to Zechariah, it's almost like entering into a foreign nation or a foreign country and trying to get our bearings. I remember in 2015 uh, traveling to Ireland and having to drive in Ireland for the first time and just feeling discombobulated because I was on roads that I had never been on before. They were narrow. People were driving much faster than I was comfortable with. And not only that, but I was on the opposite side of the road from what I was used to. And it didn't always work out well for me. I I ran into a curb and popped a tire. I went the wrong way on certain roads. It it was discombobulating. And yet it was really good that, that in that time I had Andrew McLean in my passenger seat who was helping to navigate and guide me so that I might better understand the roads that I was driving on and where I was going. When we come to Zechariah, the historical context can help serve to help, or help us navigate and understand Zechariah better as we understand what in the world is happening at this time. Zechariah 1.1 helps us to locate this book and fill in the kind of historical context when we read, in the eighth month, 
in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. That, that tells us, if we locate that date, that this happens in 520 B.C. We actually think Zechariah wrote this book uh, mo- that he spoke at multiple different times. And so the first time being kind of 520 B.C., then chapters 7 through 8 happening about 518 B.C., and then chapters 9 through 14 coming at a later date. But, but we might ask, okay, what in the world is happening at this time? And I think it's helpful. I've got this timeline. Now, it says a timeline of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, but you'll see uh, Haggai and Zechariah down here. Uh, I think it's helpful to see what is happening and what is Zechariah speaking into. And so we could rewind back or flash back uh, 66 years from the time that Zechariah writes. He's writing about 520 B.C. If we flash back to 586 B.C., that's an infamous year in the history of Israel. Because for years, God had warned his people I'm going to judge you for your sin if you don't turn back to me and repent and come back home to me. If you don't follow after my ways, if you don't stop chasing after idols in your own hearts, I'm going to judge you and send you into exile. And 586 BC is when God ultimately fulfills that as Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the superpower of the day, comes, ransacks Jerusalem, destroys their walls, tears down their beautiful temple and takes almost all the people into exile into Babylon. And yet the beauty is that even as they head out into exile, God tells them in places like Isaiah 45 and Jeremiah 29, I'm going to bring you back one day. I'm going to bring you back one day. I'm not done with you. And so that gets set in motion when this guy named Cyrus, who is the king or emperor of Persia, takes over Babylon, and Persia becomes the world superpower of the day. And Cyrus has this new kind of idea that I'm going to send people who've been exiled back home so that they might rebuild their cities, rebuild their temples. And and we actually learn about this in Ezra 1, 1 through 3. Ezra 1 through 6 are kind of written around the same time or referring to the same time as Zechariah. And in Ezra 1, 1 through 3, we read this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, it's probably 539 B.C., that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the one who is in Jerusalem. That's an incredible example, or this is, of God's sovereignty over political rulers and political events in the day. Because Cyrus is ultimately sending the Israelites back home because he wants to secure the kind of outskirts of his empire by having people live in them. And because he wants to increase tax revenue by having people be productive in the outskirts of the empire. And yet Ezra's saying, you know why you're going back home? Not because Cyrus is proclaiming it, but because God is fulfilling his word to send you back home. And so you can just imagine that first group of Israelites going back. We think it's about 50,000 people. The type of joy and hope that was on their faces. Like God is literally fulfilling his promises right before our eyes. This is what he said he's going to do. 
He's giving us another chance. We're going back home. And yet it doesn't take long for reality to set in. They get back home and Jerusalem is in shambles. The temple is completely destroyed. And so they they set to work building this temple and they get the foundation laid. And it says even when they lay the foundation that there was weeping There was rejoicing by those who had never seen the temple before, but those who had seen the glory of Solomon's temple wept because of how small and insignificant this seemed to be. And then after the foundations laid, there's all sorts of problems, both internally with the Israelites and externally with other nations who are threatening them. And so they give up the work. And now it's 16 years later, in about 520 BC. They come back in 536. 16 years later. The foundation's still barren. And day after day, it mocks the Israelites for how they failed God, just like their fathers failed to be committed to him. The the economy's bad because the land had recently suffered a severe drought. Taxes were high because the new king, King Darius, was uh, conducting wars throughout the empire to control, consolidate his power. Not many people had returned home after that initial wave. And Jerusalem that was part of this long-off province of Persia, is still small, insignificant, and under the reign of a foreign empire of Persia. These people are discouraged. They're disillusioned. They're cynical. They're wondering, what in the world is God doing? Barry Webb says, all indications are therefore that life in Yehud was difficult. Yehud's the province that Jerusalem was a part of. Its people lived daily with the painful contrast between the glories of the past and the humiliation of the present. Very little of what the returnees had expected had been realized. It's into this context that God calls Zechariah to speak. To people who are discouraged, to people who are down, to people who are confused. And I think that alone should encourage us, that God meets us in our lowest moments, in our darkest places, and our places where we are most discouraged, and he offers us hope through his word, which is what he does through this book in Zechariah. This is the hope we're going to look at in the first part of this series, and yet it's a hope that we see starts in an odd place with repentance, as Zechariah says in 1, chapter 1, 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil deeds and from your evil ways but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Father, we believe that... uh, in the former days, you spoke to our fathers through the prophets in many ways and at many times. But in these last days, you've spoken to us through your very son, Jesus Christ. 
And so I pray that as we look at Zachariah's word, that ultimately you would speak to us through Jesus, through the one who fulfills the prophets, through the one who they were always pointing to, through the one who is our only hope in life and death. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I I wonder if, if you've ever started something only to completely mess it up along the way. Started something new or started some project only to completely mess it up as you went along. I I think that describes almost every bit of IKEA furniture that I've tried to put together in my own life. I I hate IKEA furniture because it reveals how like unhandy I am in my life. But, but I start out well, I've got the instructions, I've got all the pieces, and yet somewhere along the way, I put a bolt in wrong, I put a piece on backwards, and all of a sudden, I've got like four drawers in this dresser only to realize I'm putting it together upside down. Like, where, where did I go wrong? What happened? I've got to backtrack and, and start again. I, I've guess, I would guess you've had projects like that in your own life. But, but the reality is where we blow it in projects or things that we're doing in our life doesn't compare to the other ways that we tend to blow it in our lives. That, that when it comes to our relationships, whether as parents or children or spouses or friends or coworkers or in any other area, we, we know what it feels like to absolutely fail. We're just to blow it, maybe over and over and over and over again. And maybe even more than that, what we we feel even more deeply is all the ways that we kind of let God down. All the ways that we're aware of how we fail to love, trust, and obey him. All the ways that we tend to blow it in our relationship with him. And in those moments, we tend to wonder, is, is there a way forward? Is there a second chance? Is there a fresh start? Is there hope for someone like me who keeps screwing up? And the answer God gives to the Israelites and to us is yes, there is. And it's ultimately found in the way of repentance. That repentance in our lives is this soil from which hope grows in our lives. We're going to see, I hope, three things about repentance in this passage. The, The need for repentance in our lives, the nature of it, what it is, what it looks like, and then ultimately the hope of repentance as we repent in our lives. And we might start first just with the need for repentance, that we need to see things God's way. We need to see things God's way. And we might say that starts with, uh, we need to see and take our sin seriously. Repentance is a call to take sin seriously. We, We can't read the Bible without coming in contact again and again and again and again, with how seriously God takes sin in our lives. And there's all sorts of examples of that, but but the exile of the Israelites is a really, really big example of that. Because for years, God had called out to his people and warned them and said, stop running after idols, stop chasing after your own hearts and your own desires, come back to me. But if you don't, I will judge you for your sin. Be warned. And Zechariah says in this passage, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. That the exile was God's judgment on his people and their sins and their rebellion. Why? 
because God had called out to them through Jeremiah and all the other prophets. And Zechariah says, here's what they said. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear me or pay attention to me. We, we shouldn't miss that when we speak of God's anger and judgment against sin, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes after years and years and years of warning and wooing his people and calling them back to him. And that in his kindness and patience and grace, God is calling people to repent. And yet we see from the Israelites that year after year after year after year, they ignored and they rejected and they pushed God away. And so finally he sent them into exile as he said they would. The exile is a history lesson that tells us God takes sin very seriously. And so should we. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to cover over sin in my life with all sorts of justifications, all sorts of excuses, all sorts of rationales, but that never actually deals with the problem of sin in my life. That, that in some ways, we, we might be, tend to be like someone who spots mold in their house, and instead of actually dealing with the mold, ignore it or just paint over top of it. And yet we know that that only causes the mold to continue to spread throughout the house. Repentance is this act of taking sin seriously in our lives, acknowledging it for what it is, confessing it to God, asking for his forgiveness, and calling out to him to change us and make us new. And then the second thing that I think we can see about the need for repentance is that repentance is a call to see that real change starts in us. Real change starts in me. Real change starts in you. It's interesting to me that God's calling out to the Israelites who returned home from exile and saying to them, first of all, you need to repent. I would guess for them, there would have been this tendency to say, whoa, whoa, wait a second, God. You need to tell the other Israelites who stayed in Persia, who are really comfortable, that they need to repent. God, you need to tell all these pagan nations around us who are harassing us and making it hard on us, they need to repent, not us. Or or I'm guessing it would have been really easy for the Israelites to think our hope ultimately lies in God changing our circumstances, right? Like if he would just make life better for us, if he would just remove these heavy taxes, help our crops to grow, and take us out from this empire of Persia who's dominating us, then life would be better. See, there's this tendency, I think, in all of us to look out at other people and see how they need to repent, how God should call them to repent, or to look out at our circumstances and say, this is what God needs to change. And all the while, God looks at us and says, but I want to change you. I want to change you. And until I change you, doing those other things is pointless. Here's how we might picture it in our minds. You might picture it as if you are get into your car to drive somewhere, and you plug in the wrong address to your GPS. And so instead of heading to Philadelphia, you're headed to Pittsburgh, and you don't realize it. And along the way, I don't know how you don't realize it. Maybe you're just not a good driver, but you don't realize it, right? You should realize it. You're following your GPS. But along the way, you, you get a flat tire, and so you've got to pull off. And what are you thinking in that moment? Man, I just need to fix this flat tire so I can get back on the road and keep going. 
But in reality, there's a deeper issue, right? That what you need is actually new coordinates in the GPS. And that if you fix the flat tire without fixing the GPS, it's actually going to serve to take you farther in the wrong direction. And I think there's this realization with God, with these Israelites who returned home from exile. If I fix all your problems, if I just take away Persian rule, I make the economy better, you've got this beautiful temple again, an incredible city of Jerusalem, and crops are overflowing, you'll still be at the same place as your fathers before you, with lots of good stuff, and yet with hearts that are far from me. And so God starts by saying, now, I, I want you to repent, to return back to me, that that's where hope ultimately begins. I think for us, as we face all sorts of challenges and difficulties in our lives, whether that's in relationships or whether that's in circumstances, the tendency for us is to say, God, change that person. Change this thing I'm facing. God, change my circumstances before me. Rather than saying, God, change me. Change me. Show me how you want to make me more like Christ. Show me where sin still resides in my own heart and I need to turn from it. Show me what's in me and how you want to shape and mold and change me. So the, the need for repentance is that change ultimately starts in us as God works to free us more and more from sin to love and trust and obey him. That leads us to the second part, the nature of repentance, a change that happens in us. This passage, I think, gives this beautiful word picture of what repentance is as God calls out to his people through Zechariah in verse 3 and says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That, that word return is used four times in this passage, and it's the same word that's used in verse 6 to say the, these Israelites did return, they repented. It's the word that's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to repentance. It's the word that's most often used to refer to Israelites either turning away and running away from God or turning back to him and running back to him. And we get from this word that that repentance is ultimately this change that happens in us where we're going away from God and instead we turn and start heading back towards God. That, That repentance is a change in direction, we might say. A change in direction. For years, God called out to his people, return to me. You can see this in Jeremiah. You can see this in other prophets. Return to me. Stop chasing after your own heart. Stop chasing after your idols. Come back to me. And yet the people refused and kept going. They ultimately threw up a stiff arm to God's words and to his prophets and said, no, we don't want to hear you. And we're going to keep going our own way. When I'm, when I'm watching football, one of my favorite plays to actually see, I think, is a stiff arm. In fact, I've got a picture of one of the people who's probably the best at it, a guy by the name of Derrick Henry from the Titans. That, that the stiff arm is this idea of I'm going in the direction I want to go, and the defender's running at me and trying to tackle me. And so I'm going to throw up my arms, I'm going to push them out of the way, and I'm going to keep going in the way that I want to go. It's incredible when it happens in football. It's horrible when it happens in our lives in relationship to God. And yet it's so easy to hear God speaking into our lives, convicting us, calling us to repentance, and for us just to throw up a stiff arm and say, no, I'm going to keep going in the way that I want to go. 
And, and what's so sad about it, I think, in some ways, is that as God called the Israelites to repent, he, he wasn't like a defensive back who was trying to tackle them and take them to the ground. He was like a good father or a spouse who was holding his arms wide open saying, come back to me, come back to me. And the Israelites looked at him as he called them back and instead stiff-armed him and kept running in their own way or direction. So there's this danger for us that when we hear God's words, when we hear, how he, or, or we hear his spirit speaking to us, we, we hear how he's convicting us that we just kind of keep going in our own direction all the while God's saying, no, 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 come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. My arms are open wide, come home to me. So repentance is this change in direction, but, but I think it's also a little bit more than that, that we might say it's a change in affection. We can be prone to think of repentance primarily in terms of behavior, right? I'm doing something, I stop doing that, and I start doing something else. And, and there absolutely is this aspect of change of behavior when it comes to repentance, but it's because there's been a change in our hearts, first of all that there's a change of affection, a change of love towards God that takes place. Again, it's, it's interesting to me that God calls to these Israelites who have returned home from exile, return to me. It seems like that should be something that he's saying to the people who are still in Persia and, ba- or, and other places, saying, no, you come home. But it's as if he's telling these Israelites who came home to build the temple, to do these good things, you came home, but you never really came back to me. You never really came home to me. See, I think there's this real danger, maybe especially for people who are Christians and are are part of the church and and, and have grown up in the church, to kind of go through the motions of Christianity, where where we gather together and and we sing the songs and we try to read our Bibles and, and we pray and and we serve in ministry, and and we try to disciple our families, and all good things. And yet all the while, our heart remains distant from God, or is slowly drifting away from God. That we start to love and pursue other things more than him, or we start to care about other things more than him, and we don't ever even realize it because we've continued going through the actions without ever realizing that our heart has drifted from him. And God calls to us, and he says, I I don't want your Christian performance ultimately. I want your heart. See, just as active and rebellious disobedience as a way of stiff-arming God, so too is obedience done out of a heart that doesn't really, truly love God. And so repentance is to acknowledge it. God, my heart has drifted from you. I've started to care about other things more than you. I've started to love other things more than you, whether that be my family or my career or or whatever else, comfort, whatever else it might be. And God, I I need you to draw me back to you and to give me a heart heart that loves you again. Now, I, I hope you're seeing as we talk about this, Repentance isn't just this one-time act. Like, it's a lifestyle over and over and over again, seeing where I've wandered from God. We, we are prone to wonder in our hearts and our love and our affections. Repentance is not just the beginning of the Christian life, although it is. It's the fruit of a relationship with God. 
that over and over and over again, we come back to him and we ask him to work in us, to change us, to give us hearts that love, trust, and obey him more. And then ultimately, as we do, our our hope is not that we're going to fix or change ourselves, but that repentance brings us back to the God who is working to fix and change us. That this is the hope of repentance, God's commitment to us. A question that the people in Zechariah's day are likely asking is, is God done with us? Is he done with us? Right? Like day after day after day, you've got to think, the, the crumbled walls of Jerusalem, the unfinished foundation of the temple would have mocked them and said, you came back here, but look at you. You haven't done what God's called you to do. You're no better than your fathers before you. Day after day, it mocked their failures. And they would have looked around at the economy and everything kind of in shambles and Persia still ruling over them and wondered, is God done with us? Is he done with us? Has he finally just abandoned us, given up on us, and moved on to people who are less stubborn and rebellious? And so it would have been incredible to hear Zechariah speaking on behalf of God to his people and saying, no, he's not done with you. He's not done with you. You haven't screwed up so badly that you've chased him away. Return to him and he will return to you. He's still committed to you. His promises are still true. He's still got you. Come back to him. I mean, that would have been really good news for them to hear. You haven't screwed up so badly that God is done with you. I wonder in our own lives if there are moments where we think, have I screwed up so bad that God's done with me? Or have I screwed up so bad that that I can't even come to God in the first place? Repent and trust Christ. I'm I'm just too much of a mess. Or, Or maybe for more of us, it's just we wonder if God is perennially disappointed with us because of how much we keep failing him and letting him down. And it's in those moments of things blowing up, us feeling like an absolute failure, that repentance is this incredible gift to us. See, repentance isn't ultimately a duty we have to do. It's this thing we get to do because of the gospel and because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That repentance brings us, first of all, back into God's felt presence. Reminding us God's love and favor for us doesn't rest on our behavior and how well we're doing, but on what Christ has done. Like, it's easy, I think, to believe God loves us and is committed to us when we're doing our best, when we're kind of crushing it, having our best days and our best weeks. It's another thing to say, God loves me and is committed to me in the midst of my absolute worst days and worst failures. And repentance is this act of saying, God is still just as committed to me because ultimately he forgives me of my sin and makes me righteous in Christ. It's what he has done for me. And then the second thing we might see is that repentance invites God to work in our lives. I think we're prone to have this idea that God works through the most gifted people, the most dynamic people, the most charismatic people, the most powerful people, people like uh, Darius, or maybe just people like Daniel, who's alive at this time too, right? And yet, Zechariah is this reminder that God works through the humble and lowly, the people who love to repent and acknowledge their need for God. Katie Joy read this verse earlier when we were worshiping, singing together. 
from Isaiah 57:15, but listen to it again. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Catch the imagery in that verse, how incredible that is. God's saying, I dwell in a high and holy place outside of time. You, you can't grasp how great I am. And I also dwell with people who are humble and lowly and realize just how desperate their need is for me. See, repentance forms us into the people that God loves to use. Humble, needy, recognizing how great our dependence is on God. I, I think about if you've ever played with Play-Doh in your life before, or if you play with it now when you have little kids, what, what's most important when it comes to a piece of Play-Doh? That it's soft and moldable for you to be able to use it, right? Like if we open up a tube of Play-Doh at home and, it, and it's ultimately hard and stiff, I don't use that, I, I put it back in or maybe throw it in the trash, whatever it might be. But, but if there's a piece of Play-Doh that's soft, okay, yeah, I can use that. What God uses in us is not ultimately our great gifts and talents, although he does use those things, he uses us because we recognize how great our need is for us, because our hearts are soft to him and call out to him in desperation, God, help me in all that I'm facing. Right? And repentance is what makes us into those type of people, what causes us to be lowly and contrite and humble. And then thirdly, repentance renews our hope in God. Listen for a moment again to how God refers to himself as he calls out to the Israelites to repent. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That title, Lord of hosts, is an incredible title for God. Because here's another way that's sometimes translated. The Lord of heaven's armies. It's this idea to the Israelites, of, the, the prophets love to use this term, by the way, and it's this idea to the Israelites of, yeah, the, the Persian Empire seems great, Darius seems incredible, they seem like they're ruling over everything, but you know who's ruling over them? Me, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. And for the Israelites, this small band of people in this broken down city who've failed God again and again to hear the Lord of hosts has not abandoned you, but is still with you, return to him and he will return to you, would have seemed like it could be, was too good to be true. It would have seemed like it's too good to be true. No way. God's really still on our side. He's really still with us. All we need to do is return, repent, and he is with us and for us. It would have seemed far too good to be true. And yet this is what the book of Zechariah assures us of. And it's what the gospel assures us of. In the past couple weeks, uh, there was a new car wash that opened up by our house for the first time. So brand new, we've been watching it get built over the past, I don't know, probably month. And finally, several weeks ago, it opened up. And, and I drove past it for the first time. And they had these signs out front that said, free car wash. And I drove past and I was going to work. I'm like, should I turn around? It's like, there's no way. There's no way it's actually a free car wash, right? There's some catch to this. Like, maybe they'll give me the water to wash my car, but there's no way they would actually wash my car for free. I probably have to sign up for something, or like, I've got to, maybe it's buy one, get, there's no way it's actually free. I drove past, again, like three days later, saw the signs out. Same thing happened in my mind. There's no way. Like, this is not a free car wash. There's no way that they're going to do that for me for free. There's some catch. It took me a week to finally stop in. 
And even when I did stop in, here's what was happening in my mind. Yeah, maybe it's a free car wash, but it's probably like the, the cheapest one they have, right? Like they kind of mist your car. There's still soap suds on your car as you drive out. They don't really clean it. Like there's just no way that they give you the good one. I pull in and it's like the $23 Wash, wax, shine, like make your wheels nice, everything included one. All included. That's what they were offering for free. Yet it took me a week to stop in and get that car wash. Granted, they were shut down when I stopped in, so it didn't actually work out. But it took me a week to actually stop in because I just didn't believe. There's no way. There's no way. I wonder how often we fail to repent and return back to God because we think there's some catch. Like, I've just blown it too much. I keep letting him down so much. There's got to be some catch. There's no way it's as simple as confessing my sins, trusting Christ, and believe he really does forgive me, and that God ultimately is for me and going to work for me. Like, like, there's no way. And yet the gospel, the book of Zechariah, more says, yes, repent, trust Christ, and the God of the universe, the Lord of hosts, really is for you. Repentance is this act of saying God saves me and forgives me, not because of what I do, but because of what Christ has done for me. And therefore, repentance is this act of saying my hope is not in myself and how much I accomplish or how much I fail, but in my God and what he will ultimately do for me. See, that, that's where our hope lies. Our hope doesn't lie in what we can accomplish. Our hope doesn't lie in us getting our act together. Our hope lies in God and what he will do for us in Christ. Zechariah is this book that isn't primarily about what people can do for God. Although he's going to call them to rebuild the temple and he's going to call them to act in faith, it's primarily a book about what God is promising and what he's going to do for his people. And so I just want to conclude this morning with this idea. Zechariah's message, I think in many ways, is God's not done with you. God's not done with me. God's not done with you. This was Zechariah's message to the Israelites in the face of their failures, and it's God's message to us in the face of our failures and sins and screw-ups. God is not done with you. You have not blown it so bad that God has cast you off. You have not failed so many times that God said, I can't use you. God is not done with you. Rather, he calls to us all, return to me, come back to me, repent of sin, trust me, and watch how I will work for you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the good news of the gospel, that our hope for salvation is not in ourselves, but it's in you and your promises, that our hope for the future as a result is not in ourselves and what we might accomplish, but it's in believing that you, the Lord of hosts, is with us and for us. And God, the only reason that we can have the type of boldness to repent and believe that is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. When he died in our place, rose again conquering death and promises that he's gonna return again to make all things new. God, help us to put our hope fully in him. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.